a prophet is someone who speaks for the Lord. So someone that the, the Lord gives a message to, it's the, um, and it's, they speak to the people a message that the Lord gives to them, you know. And Zechariah is a prophet. You know, what we're reading here as we're going through this book is about his ministry. It's the recording of that. And Zechariah lived in this really incredible time in history. It's like 2,500 years ago, and the people of God have been in exile, but there's a big time of transition now. They've been in exile because of the discipline of the Lord, and now there's going to be a time of return and renewal. And it's through Zechariah, through this prophetic ministry, that uh, the Lord gave His people a promise. They're in exile, and God says to them, listen, you are where you are because of your sin. Sin does that. It clouds, it distorts, it damages. You are where you are because of your sin. But in spite of this, there's this message of grace. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 3. Return to me, and I will return to you. If you turn to me, I'll be there. What a great God, what a gracious God to say, in spite of what you've done, listen, you are where you are because of your sin, but if you turn to me, you'll be able to find me. I'll be there. We don't always know the process of how God works in a prophet, right? How is it that he gives this person his message so that the people can... You know, no, but we'd see this in the early part of Zechariah. Zechariah has what we call these night visions. On one night, there's this series of eight visions that God gives uh, to Zechariah to, in turn, pass along to the people. And in visions one through five, it's all about return and renewal. God is going to uh, live amongst his people again in Jerusalem. And then in visions six through eight, it's about um, uh, judgment and cleansing. And it, you know, it's, it's expelling the idolatry from the people. But when we get here, this passage is right on the heels of those night visions. And what we find is that the Lord is turning back to his primary interest in Zechariah's ministry. And it's the future of his people. The Lord gives another word to Zechariah. You see this in the first part. And in every part, what we're going to see is that the Lord directs Zechariah. And and we see that this message isn't just for them, it's for later generations too. So how is it that the Lord directs Zechariah through this? We see in the first part, he tells Zechariah to make a crown and put it on uh, Joshua's head, okay? And that's in verses 9 through 11. Let's read that again. It says, and the word of the Lord came to me. That's what Zechariah says. Just pause right there. These aren't Zechariah's ideas. This is the word of the Lord that came to him, okay? This is what he's carrying out. What Zechariah is doing here uh, is doing at the Lord's directions. What does the Lord tell Zechariah? Well, in verses 10 and 11, he's, the Lord tells Zechariah, Take from the exiles Hildai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, Take from them silver and gold, make a crown, set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. What an interesting thing. What he tells them, we're going to break it down a little bit. He tells them, listen, I want you to get gold and silver from some people. And early in verse 10, it's take from them, this certain group of people, and then it becomes very clear in verse 11, take from them silver and gold. So you're going to get 
some silver and gold from people, and it turns out these are exiles who have come back from Babylon. They're named. And they're Heldai and Tobijah and Jediah and Josiah. If you wonder if that's the right way to pronounce those names, I have no idea. Just do your best whenever you read. They're transliterations anyway, but they're named. Why are they named? Is it to give people like Morgan and me a hard time whenever we try to read them? No. They're named probably because they're well-known. They're identifiable. And by the way, these are the people that Zechariah has to approach, so it's helpful that he's got their names. But he said they're described this way. They, they've arrived from Babylon. Keep in mind that exiles who returned from Babylon to come back to Jerusalem or that area have heeded the Lord's call to leave Babylon and to come back home and help them rebuild. What that person is doing, that returning exile, is they're saying, I'm no longer identifying with Babylon. And that would be easy to do because the exile was 70 years before. That's where most of them were born and raised. That is the life they know. That's what they came up with. And when this came out, they're leaving all of that to come back and help rebuild out of the ruins. And some, it's maybe harder than you think, because some of them became wealthy while they were in Babylon. Um, to see this in Ezra, they, whenever they returned, they brought some of that wealth back with and helped rebuild. God often uses wealthy people. Um, help bless others, to help, uh, help others, to resource his great work. If, if you are wealthy, you are a steward. And you should be a humble steward. Because what you have is not yours you, like everybody else, should just glorify God with what you've got. turns out that rich people are people, and poor people are people, and in-the-middle people are people. We're all sinners in need of a Savior, and thank God He's given one, okay? And so there's this ministry here that they've been given. And the reason they're uh, named and identified as exiles is not just so that Zechariah will know who to approach, but that's a big deal. And it's not just as a fundraising technique. You know, like if you're trying to fundraise and you've got a poor set of people there and all of a sudden a new group comes in and they've got a little money, you know, you've got a little fundraising technique, like we're going to broaden the pool for which we make the pitch. What is God doing here? He's showing that those who have arrived from Babylon, as they're described, are in the center of his plan. There are no insiders and outsiders. Does that sound familiar? There are no insiders and outsiders. What do you see there? God is saying, I'm calling my people back to me, and these are my people. They're just mine. So, all right, Zechariah, here's what you're going to do. Here are these named exiles. They've got a little bit of money that they got from Babylon. And as they return, you're going to get some gold and silver from them, and you're going to make a crown out of it, verse 11. Now, what is a crown? I, I notice that we have a conspicuous lack of crowns this morning. Now, why is that? Well, crowns are for royalty. I'm not dissing you or anything like that, but in particular, uh, kings. Kings. And what he says is, you're going to get this, you're going to make a crown, and you're going to put that crown on the head of this guy named Joshua. Uh, Joshua. Uh, hold on a second. Joshua is the high priest. High priest, king. Different offices. They don't do the same thing. Back in their world, very, you know, separate. And so here, this, you know, here's this crown, which is a symbol of royal authority. It's what you'd expect to put on a king because he's the governmental leader. 
And you got Joshua, who's the high priest at the time, very different office, very different function. He's the religious leader. And you look at this and you go, this is strangely this overlap of these two formerly separate offices. And it looks like the Lord might be telling uh, Zechariah, listen, what we're going to do is we're going to take the high priest and we're going to make him the king. But that's not at all what's going to happen. I mean, it looks like a coronation, right? You see a prophet put a crown on a guy's head. You just think, well, okay, well, that guy's the king. And that's not what's going on. It becomes clear in the later verses. Well, then what is going on? Keep in mind, I started by saying this is what a prophet does. He takes the message that God gives him and he passes it along to the people. And sometimes that's through words and sometimes that's through an action. So what's going on here is when Zechariah makes that crown and he puts it on the head of Joshua, that's what scholars call a sign act. Okay? Do you need to know that phrase? No, you don't need to know that phrase. But it's combining these two things. He's doing this action, and in that action of crowning the high priest, it's a message for the people. They're supposed to see in that, not Joshua is the next king, but they're supposed to see in that, the Lord has a message for us that's putting a royal crown on the head of somebody who's functioning as a high priest, sort of blurring the lines. Second thing that, uh, that the Lord does to direct uh, Zacharias, he says, I want you to give this message to Joshua concerning the branch. The branch. Look at verses 12 and 13 with me. And say to him, say to uh, Joshua the high priest, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on the throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. So again, you've got to have the scene in mind, right? This is a sign act, and through the actions of Zechariah, that's the message. So, so far, what Zechariah has done is he's made this crown, he's put it on the head of the high priest, and he points at him and he says, that's the branch. That's the branch. That's the message. Now, why the branch? That's the first thing he does. He points to the symbolically crowned high priest. He says, behold, the man whose name is Branch. Why the branch? Well, they would all know. I mean, you, you could be forgiven. I could be forgiven if you read that and you go, that's a weird name. It's a dumb name, actually. Who names their kid Branch? Or who gives a title to somebody Branch? You don't, you don't listen to that and go, you know what we're going to do? We're going to create the office. We'll call it Branch and everybody will go, oh, what an impressive title. So it's not intuitive to us, but they knew. We, we might not know in our context, but they would know. It was like a code name. Interesting that the one sort of unnamed person in all of this is the branch. Everybody else is named. The exiles are named, Joshua's named, but not the branch. Now why? And how would they know? Well, they would know because, among others, Jeremiah prophesied before, like seven decades before. And he talked about, in his ministry, he talked about the branch all the time. The branch. The branch would come. For example, one example, Jeremiah 33, 15. The Lord's message there is, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. Jeremiah's prophecy is about this one to come, 
right? And here's this branch that's going to come. And what Zechariah is doing in part is he's saying, we all remember the prophetic ministry of Jeremiah, right? And he told us about the one. I'm just reminding you that's the word of the Lord and it holds. When the Lord speaks, it's true. Seven decades later, 700 years later, when the Lord makes a declaration like that and he goes, this is my plan and this is what's going to come to pass, he's going to see it through and it's going to happen. So maybe you're looking at the ruins you're living in and you're thinking, there is no way anything's ever going to come out of this. But the Lord has spoken and the prophetic ministry of Jeremiah pointing to this one called the branch remains. It's still true. But again, why the branch? Here's what they would know. Okay, They would understand the imagery and God's promise out of that. Start with this. They're part of God's people, and they lived in Judah. And Judah, Israel, was this mighty tree. Mighty tree. And it got cut down. And it got scattered. Most of the people went into exile, and all that was left. What happens whenever you cut down a tree? What's left? Just a stump. You ever seen that where every once in a while you cut down a big old tree and it's kind of left for dead and then out of that these little sprigs come up? There's life that comes up out of the stump. Jeremiah is saying that's what God's going to do. It looks like absolute total destruction. All that's going to be left is this stump, but out of that little remnant, out of that stump, there's going to be life that comes and out of that is going to be this one called the branch. It's going to emerge and grow into this greater thing. Um. There's a little wordplay in the Hebrew there. The branch will branch out of its place, out of the stump, or it could be translated shoot. The shoot will shoot out of the stump. And the branch represented that. All, it seemed like they were just totally destroyed. There's nothing left, and God had promised them a future king, an ultimate king that would emerge out of the nothing leftovers that they are. You ever, uh, you ever done that? You look at your like, sphere of peers, you get called to do a project at work or you're on, an, on a baseball team or a football team and you've got this big project, you, you, you want to compete, you want to do a great job and you look around at your team and you go, oh boy, not good. So they're, they're a group of people, let's just say they're not ranked in the top 25, okay? That nobody's looking at them and being really impressed with who they are. And God is saying, out of all this desolation, out of the leftovers, the nothing that you are, is going to emerge this ultimate king, this one called the branch. That's a message of great hope, and what Jeremiah told you is still true. It remains. And then what Zechariah does is he goes on to describe the branch. Okay, so they would get the imagery. Uh, we've been a tree that was cut down, and out of that stump is this promise that's going to endure. Okay? But then he describes the branch in these two ways. One of the things that he points out is he says, his position intertwines uh, the priest and king. Right? There's always been separate offices until now. He's, he's obviously king, verse 13. He shall bear royal honor. He shall sit and rule on his throne. That's what a king does. But you add to that, there's this priestly function or person. It can be translated, he'll be a priest on his throne. A priest shall be on his throne, it says in verse 13. And those two offices function together perfectly. It says, and the council of peace shall be between them both. All right? So here you had these two separate offices. It's the way they'd always seen it. High priest and king. 
And in this coming one, he intertwines those. It's hard to separate the priestly part and the king part. And the second thing says this twice, he will build the temple of the Lord. The end of verse 12 and the beginning of verse 13. It's interesting because Zerubbabel, uh, cool names back then, uh, Zerubbabel was the governor and he was charged with that functional physical building. He's going to build a physical temple. It's not going to be very big. And you go like, well, maybe scholars have done this, have gone, well, maybe the branch is Zerubbabel. It can't be Zerubbabel. It might be an echo, like kind of a sign of what's to come. But Zerubbabel is not the branch. He's not the big ultimate king guy who's going to come. One, he's not named. So why is that a big deal? Well, Zerubbabel's alive, and he's just as available as Joshua. So if you're going to put a crown on somebody's head and say, this guy's the king, if it's actually Zerubbabel, just have the guy come in. Right? They know who he is. He's got that office as governor. But the other thing about it is that the branch is described in verse 13, and that's not at all who Zerubbabel is, right? He's just, a, he's just kind of this token representative guy who's going to get him there. You know, so you're looking at, okay, so we have in, the, in their time, we have this governor named Zerubbabel, we have this high priest named Joshua. Zerubbabel's not even a king. Joshua's a high priest who doesn't even have a temple to function in, and somehow this one is going to come out of you know, the ministry and the function and the offices of these two and be the ultimate king-priest guy. Huh. But anyway, Zerubbabel is going to build a temple, but it's going to be a small temple, a physical temple. The temple the branch will build is later. It's not a physical temple. It's the eschatological temple, meaning... It's the ultimate temple. It's the end of time temple. It's the once for all, you can't get any better than this most permanent temple. It's the eternal temple. So Zerubbabel's temple looks back and looks ahead, looks back at Solomon's and says, ah, we're not as good as this, but this isn't the final temple. This isn't the final destination. The branches temple is this later final work. All right? And then the Lord directs them beyond this, directs Zechariah beyond this. So don't just make a crown and put it on uh, Joshua, the high priest, but also describe it. Give him a message concerning the branch who's already been prophesied by uh, Jeremiah many years before. The third thing that he directs him to do is to keep this crown in the temple as a memorial in verse 14. All right, we're going to read verse 13 again, but I want to remind you the temple doesn't, hasn't been built yet. So that's confidence, right? Hey, this temple that isn't built, this crown you've just made is going to go in there. Look at verse 14 with me. It says, And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. What's he doing here? This is in the meantime. What is this sign act for? One day. One day, not yet, one day this ultimate one will emerge out of us who will be the priest king uh, in the ultimate temple of the Lord. That is going to happen one day, but not yet. So here's what I want you to do. The Lord says, I want you to do this in the meantime. You keep this crown in the temple so that whenever you see it, you're reminded of what I said here. Because this is going to happen. Right? The basic instructions, looks like he renames the exiles uh, with some variations uh, from verse 10, you take that crown back from Joshua, you put it in the temple that's going to be built 
here in a couple of years, and you keep it there as a reminder, as a memorial of what the Lord has promised in this coming branch. As you, right, these are, these are people who are going to operate in the temple. As you go about your regular worship, you're going to see the crown in there. You're going to see this crown, and you're going to remember as you're doing this that there's a day beyond the day you're living in. That's really hard for people to do sometimes. Like we all, you can look back in history and you sort of define yourself as history or think of yourself as in a better spot as everybody else. I mean, the reason you look at your day as the most important day is because you happen to be in it, right? That's what we all do. It's the human experience. And he's telling them, listen, you're going to operate in the temple and you're going to see this crown and it's going to be a reminder to you. There's a day, there's something bigger beyond the day you're living in. There's a, you're right now, but, and there's an already, but there's a not yet that's coming your way. It's going to be great. Ian Duguid is a scholar. He says, their work is secondary, auxiliary to the primary building work of the branch. Theirs is temporary, that temple that they're building, but the branches is eternal, right? So good. There's this coming, you know, I got this little temple that's physical, but there's one that's this great ultimate temple, it's the forever temple. Hmm. I wonder what that could be. How good would that be? The Lord's going to be at work. There's, there's this one coming and with Him a new temple, a temple greater, far greater than the one you're in. Keep that in mind. You're going to look at this and you're going to know there's a great day ahead. And finally, in verse 15, the Lord directs Zechariah, encourage and command the people to heed my voice. Look at verse 15 with me. It says, And those who are far off shall come and help build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know uh, that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. There's an encouragement there for the people to listen and believe and follow. Heed my voice. And there are kind of two sides of it. There's encouragement and command. Uh, there's an encouragement that says, listen, God says to the people in essence, I'm going to give you a way that you can confirm this, Okay. One of the things that you're going to see is there are going to be people who come from far off and they'll help you rebuild. Right? You're going to see this. You're going to see these people join in the project. And it's probably pretty important because, like I said, they're looking at their team right then and they're going, uh, we're standing in ruins. And we've got this massive project and no money and not a lot of know-how and we've got to go from the ground floor and build this. Our prospects are not good, right? But you're going to see people from far off help build this temple. It could be Gentiles, more likely more Jews returning from exile. But here's the confirmation. Even though this seems daunting to build the temple, you're poor, lots of oppositions, lots of politics and bureaucracy to navigate. Your project's already been stalled. The people are discouraged. You're standing in ruins. Even so, it will be built. God says, this is going to come to pass. This impossible project that you're looking at, it's going to happen, and that's when you're going to know, oh, the Lord is in this, because you know you couldn't do it. And so I'm resourcing this, I'm directing it, I'm making sure that you'll see that it'll happen. And Zacharias says, this is how you'll know the Lord has sent me to you. By the way, it's a good place to pause there. One of the things that Zacharias says is you can trust my ministry because whenever I say this, it's going to happen, right? This is how you know it's from the Lord. That's important for God's people because there have always been false prophets around. Uh, there were back then, there are today, like crackpots, 
who will just say, I mean, I wouldn't say that about somebody who's like a genuine messenger of the Lord, but somebody who just says it, how easy to say. I have a word from the Lord. And maybe it's like just a, a, a word from your want to. You know, I want you to treat me like I'm a very important person or something like that, right? There's a confirmation, there's, a, there's an ability to confirm that his message and his ministry is authentic because what he says the Lord will do, the Lord does. That's how you'll know. Here's this impossible God-sized project and God showed up so that it, it happened. All right. So there you go. This is right on the hills of those night, vis- uh, the, those night visions. And you have this, this kind of fun, you know, there's a lot of big to-do about it. You're going to make a crown. You're going to put it on the high priest. You're going to point at him. Look, here's the branch. Everybody's going to go, Jeremiah, remember that? You know, the great uh, ultimate uh, king priest who's going to come. And you go, but who's the branch? Who is that? I mean, they're in the messy present, but not you. Who's the branch? I mean, who could possibly, out of this group of impotent exiles, emerge and reign like no king ever before, simultaneously function as this great high priest, such that no earthly kingdom could ever even have the capacity to challenge his reign? Who could be like that? Who could intertwine office of priest and king and do a little temple building? Well, that's Jesus. Right? All of that points ultimately to him. You remember Jesus? Jesus is the one who laid down his life for his friends. Jesus is the reason we're here. If Jesus doesn't come and identify with us, become one of us, and stand in our place and bear our sins on the cross and overcome the grave, the one who will return uh, one day to judge everything perfectly and finally. It's not for him. There's no point in any of us being here. But Jesus' ministry is to bring us to God like a great high priest. Lord of lords who will reign forever. It's Jesus. That's the branch. The one who laid down his life for his friends. What sort of temple would he build? You know, because that's the, the branch does that. He'll build the temple. He'll build the temple of the Lord. It says two times. Uh, what kind of temple could he build that would be so demonstrably and immeasurably greater than the previous ones? Where you look at the temple of Solomon and go, yeah, I guess it's okay. You know, as kind of a pointer of something great and, you know, so much beyond that to come. Listen, the branch is Jesus, but the temple, his work is the church and it's still going on today. Still being built. Believers are placed into this new dynamic temple as living stones. If you believed in Jesus... The temple is his body, right? And you're being placed, you're being fitted in there like a living stone. There's something dynamic and beyond any of like, the limitations of the physical that you would know. It's, it's beyond what you'd be able to see with your physical eyes. It's massive, but it's also beyond um, you know, what you would observe that way. That work is still going on today. So, let's ask this as we wrap up. How does, you know, that's 2,500 years ago. How should you respond to this today? This word. Where you see the, the work of God among his people who are on really hard times. And he gives them this great message of hope. You know, the short, shortened version of it is Jesus is coming. But I've seen to your future. 
I've seen to it. In spite of how you look around, you, you see your present circumstance, but I've seen to your future. How should you respond? I've got this simple framework from Ian Duguid, but I, I want to qualify this. I mean as a believer. So I'm, 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 I'm talking as a pastor. We're sharing God's word together. And I mean, if you're a believer in Christ, how should you respond? If you're not a believer, you go like, well, what should I do if I'm not a believer? Well, become a believer. Okay, that's why Jesus came, so that you who were alienated from God could be reconciled to him on the basis of what Jesus has done for you. That's grace, that what you couldn't do on your own, Jesus has done before you. So you go, well, I'm not one. Well, listen, I would love for you to become one. That's what I'm praying for. That's what you should do. But how should you respond as a believer and why? Let me give you three things. Number one, be hopeful. Be hopeful. Are, are you a hopeful person? Uh, or are you too realistic to be hopeful? There's too much data, too much evidence for you to be, you know, hopeful? Because there's the data. Of course, there's what the Lord said, but, you know, there's the data. There's the news and all that. Let what you know about your future strengthen you in the present. What do you know about your future as a believer? I'm going to ask you a question, a tough question. Do you let your present trouble be your everything? Is the struggle you're going through right now, is it always everything going on with you? Is it always your absolute focus? Does it, does it totally inform how you see yourself and even how you see your relationship with God? I'm not suggesting that your present trouble isn't difficult. The fact of the matter is your present trouble might kill you. What I am suggesting is that we can see our present trouble take on such magnificent proportions that we're unable to see anything else. Is your present trouble so big that you just can't see anything else? Believer, see, see something else. They, you know, look at these folks, they had nothing to go on but God's Word. That's all. But that's not a little thing. Through that, they build the temple. Hundreds of years after, Jesus comes and the hope of eternity is made clear. I'm telling you, you stand on a higher mountain. Now, perhaps you, perhaps you stand in ruins, but I just remind you that the Lord has spoken. Gentle reminder, His word is more powerful than the ruins you're standing in. Be hopeful. Be hopeful. Think about your tomorrow. You need that to draw strength today. Second thing. Be thankful. Be thankful. Do you deliberately and spe specifically express gratitude to God on a regular basis? I, so I have something in my calendar. I've talked about this from time to time. I do this not because I'm such a great guy. It's tempting every once in a while to go, I'd love for you to see me as a great guy. I don't do what I'm about to suggest to you because I'm such a great guy. I do this because in the, this area of being thankful, I struggle. So on my calendar at 9.15 every night, it just says, pops up 3T. That's it, 3T. And then, because I tend to brush that off, it pops up again at 9.40. Hey, dude, 3T, okay? 3T. Why 3T? Three, the number three, three things, and T stands for thankfulness. I, I try to make myself be as a spiritual discipline, as an act of regularity, to deliberately and specifically say, Lord, I am grateful because I know how you've dealt with me for these three things. And every once in a while, I have a hard time thinking of something, which is ludicrous. That's my heart, not, 
not the Lord, right? So I go through that process of doing it. What should we say about the ungrateful believer? Are you the ungrateful believer? Uh, the ungrateful believer should be an oxymoron. You know, the ungrateful uh, believer is someone who acts like uh, he hasn't been given anything when he's actually been given everything. He's been given the essential. He's been given the ultimate. He's been given the, most, the, the best and most magnificent things. And yet he acts like he doesn't have any of that becomes inevitably sour. He focuses on what he doesn't have instead of on what he does. Do you always look at a situation? It's a heart problem if you do this. And you look at it, and you could have nine-tenths of what you want, and you see the ten. Right? Uh, you, you could go into a situation, and, you know, five great things could happen, and one bad thing could happen to you, and you, you go home, and you think about the one and not the five. It can be a hard issue. I just tell you, the way you feel isn't infallible. What God says and what God says about you is a, a truer guide. Believer, it is a command to give thanks. It is a command. You are commanded, not just because it's true and the truth helps every time, but because it's good for you. It, it, gratitude reminds you, even in a fallen world, of what's enduringly true, of what not even the world or the forces of hell can take from you. And that's something that you know as a believer. Listen, I've been given something by Jesus that the, the entire world cannot take from me. I have been given something by Jesus that the forces of hell cannot take from me. Whatever the world's verdict is over my life, whatever hell's verdict is over my life, the Lord's verdict trumps it. And it lasts forever. I have something that cannot be touched. You don't have anything in life that can't be touched. Everything that you have right now, you're going to lose. Okay? You're not going to be able to hang on to it. What do you have that you can't lose? Let that strengthen you for today. Be thankful. And the third is to be faithful. You know what faithfulness is? It's like being steady. Doing the thing you're called to do and, and not giving up. Um, staying steady in your walk with Jesus. We all tend to fall off the horse on one side or the other. Have you noticed that? Some people are all about the present. And some people are all about the future. So if you're all in the present, right, that's all you ever see, you, you tend to vacillate between if things are going badly for, for you, you tend to be like doom, doom, gloom, and all of that, right? Or if things are going really well for you, you tend to go like, I don't know, Jesus who? Right, because everything's in the moment. And if you're in the future, you tend to say, well, the life I'm living right now is irrelevant. The believer is supposed to integrate the two, your present and your eternity, and you put them together. Your present bears fruit in eternity. Whatever you're dealing with now, and it might be amazing, but it could be awful, God will answer. The Apostle Paul one time talks about this. He talks about being crushed in this life. And then this is what he goes on to say. Even though I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm being crushed right now, that can't even be compared with the weight of glory that's to come. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God will answer better and greater than what you suffer? Do you believe that? Do you believe that God will raise you greater than your decline? Do you believe that? Do you believe that eternity lasts longer than this life? 
Do the thing now. You're in this season now. And, and some of you come in, we all come in in these different seasons in our lives, right? And maybe you're uh, in a season of joy and maybe you're in a season of sorrow. But the, the word of the Lord directs you. Do the thing now. Serve, grow, learn, love, sacrifice, endure, and those seeds will bear fruit. Some of them, not all, in this life. Some in eternity, all of it beautiful and all of it worth it. So put your hand to it, knowing that your labor won't be in vain because of the one who has secured your eternity is the same who connects that to your today. You realize that, right? That the today you're living in, God connects to your eternity and he goes, there's not a dissonance there. I'm connecting those. He's building this new temple now and he calls you to be faithful in building it too. So put your hand to the big work with hope and gratitude. And this is the last thing I'll say to you, as you put your hand to it. You will never regret today what will bear fruit in eternity. Do you hear that? What the Lord calls you to and what you say in spite of the ruins you're standing in, okay, I trust you. I see tomorrow. I'm going to put my hand to it, and I know you're good for it. You won't ever regret that. Because this today, it's hard. It'll bear fruit in eternity. Reminder, eternity is forever. Today's not. Let's pray. God, thank you for your good word, this sign act that points us ultimately to Jesus, who's the ultimate temple builder. He's the ultimate priest king, the ultimate temple builder, and we get the blessing by your grace, by the work of Jesus, to be fitted as living stones into that, into his church. It's so easy to lose sight of the great things in a fallen world. We have our own vision that's an obstacle, the opposition of the world around us, influences, and so on. Help us to set our eyes upon Jesus, the author of our faith, the perfecter of our faith. For you, Lord, are worthy. Help us to uh, be hopeful, uh, not despairing, to be thankful, not ungrateful, and to be faithful, not flaky. And do that for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.